Tony, I had no idea he was putting the stones to Karen. It's checkout time, Frankie. <laughs> Tony, this blows my mind. Secret Cinema, a film podcast that covers what some podcasts don't and other podcasts won't. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Wade to discuss Jonathan Demme's 1988 screwball mob comedy, Married to the Mob. I don't have any notes, so let's go to Carrie for a quick plot summary. Angela DeMarco is your average stay-at-home mom and wife, except that her husband, Frank the Cucumber, works for the Mafia. When Frank is murdered by the mob boss, Tony the Tiger Rousseau, Tony sets his eyes on Angela while she tries to start her life over. But living a normal life becomes impossible when an FBI agent named Mike and Tony's wife get involved. Married to the Mob is a very visual film, but it also relies on its soundtrack for much of its charming and playful atmosphere. To give you an idea, here's the piece of music that plays when Tony the Tiger Russo enters a medieval time-style restaurant, one that he frequents. It's important to note that this piece of music is being played diegetically, so it hasn't been laid over on the soundtrack, it's actually being played by a character in the scene. That little change in the music that you hear at the beginning of the clip is the character responding to Tony entering the room. Anyway, here's that piece of music. much noteworthy dialogue to play for you. The screenplay is by far Married to the Mob's least interesting element, but there are plenty of really interesting performances, and I want to take a moment to showcase two of the best. In this clip, you can hear Oscar nominee Dean Stockwell as Tony the Tiger Russo, and eventual Oscar winner Mercedes Rule as his wife Connie. For some context, Tony is trying to sneak off to Miami with Angela, and Connie has caught him at the airport, though she is unaware of his lies. Here's that clip. Thank God I got here in time! Oh, baby! You forgot to say goodbye to me! You forgot to say goodbye to me, baby! Uh, I thought you were fast asleep. Uh, I kissed you goodbye and everything. Oh, you should have woken me up. Oh, baby, I know I've been hard on you lately, but this morning I had this awful dream, and I realized... I've been awfully selfish. Nah, come on. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Eastern Airlines, flight 17. None stop to Miami. Now boarding, gate one, Columbus 125. Thank you. Please forgive me, baby, please. Don't be silly, Connie. No, no, no I, I've got a confession to make. The other night when you didn't come home on time, I got a little bit suspicious. I'm so ashamed of this. I went over to Angela's. You went over to Angela's? I, I couldn't help myself, baby. I just had to see if you were with her. Just thinking about you making it with that slut. 
I just, I got, I went crazy. I couldn't stand it. I, I, Tony, if I had found you banging that broad, I would have hunted you down like an animal. It would have been slow and painful. You would have begged me for mercy, baby, but I was now, so Connie, 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 you're talking crazy now. I gotta get on the plane. No, the point is, I'm so ashamed, baby. I'm so ashamed for not trusting you is what I'm trying to say. Especially when I saw the schmuck Angela was shacked up with. Schmuck? What yeah. schmuck? Uh, just some schmuck. Come on, come on, get on your plane. Boy, she didn't waste any time, did she? Oh, you get on the plane, you maniac! Yeah, okay. Tom, I'm gonna be the best wife to you. Okay, honey. See you. Okay, bye-bye. And now, our discussion of Married to the Mob. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Secret Cinema Podcast. Tonight we watched Married to the Mob, a excellent film by Jonathan Demme, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Real. <laughs> Baller introduction. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess I'll start by saying that, I mean, I kind of already said this, but I love this movie. I think it is really funny. It's is it i have a real soft spot for movies that have great production value and i think that the design and the costumes and just the world that this movie lives in is so fantastical and beautiful and colorful and interesting that it makes even the parts of this movie that aren't that interesting more interesting just because you're looking at this fantastic created world. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that this movie is like kind of inherently slight in what it is and what it's about, <laughs> it would be like, <laughs> I don't know, it would probably be one of my favorite movies. It just, that's the only thing is it's so underachieving and, but because it's so underachieving, it lets itself get so weird and interesting. It has so much fun with details that no one would ever care about or put any thought into. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, it kind of reminded me of, I recently watched, uh, the Palm Beach story which is a um, Preston Sturgis movie. What is, what is the Palm Beach It story? is about this uh, married couple. The woman, she loves her husband so much. He's an inventor. And um, she loves him so much that she decides to divorce him so she can marry a rich man and get his money so that she can fund <laughs> her, her husband's inventions. It's soul. Um, but it's it's very much like a screwball comedy, and it's like you know it's got its hokey elements, and it's a romantic comedy as well. It I feel like this is such an '80s take on that idea, and I think that's really the only reason the production design works is because it's so '80s. Like I try to think of the costumes and things that are in this movie. Even in the 90s, I think it wouldn't work. But in the 80s, because everything is so garish and over-the-top anyway, it just fits into the world even better. Yeah. I mean, if you if, if you pause and just, like, pay attention to all the ridiculous things that are in all the scenes... Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's what makes a movie. Because, like, what you, like, like you said, Paul, it's so slight. This yeah. movie is, like, excessively <laughs> slight. Yeah. It's a bunch of different genres mixed together, which could be interesting. It's like a gangster film. It's like a romantic comedy. It's something like a police procedural, even, I guess, kind of. FBI. <laughs> yeah. Um, but all these genres are done, like, very 
typically, you know, it's like nothing like in terms of substance, there's something like that interesting going on yeah. like, within any of the genres that the movie's kind of existing in. But the, like you said, the details are just like so great that it makes the movie just like kind of a, a delight yeah. to view every single time. Just like an example of some of the details in um, one of the first scenes where Michelle Pfeiffer, I guess we should kind of mention the cast, uh, but because <laughs> I haven't done that yet. Michelle Pfeiffer. But Mich yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer is the female lead. She's wonderful and gorgeous. Yeah, um, let's wait, sorry. Let's just stop <laughs> and yeah. like admire how like luminous Michelle Pfeiffer oh, is. She's so yeah. beautiful. You can put her it's in like... a shoulder padded like captain's jacket. <laughs> yeah. And she's just, <laughs> just like, oh my god. I won I wondered during the movie if Coldplay watched this movie and they were like, that's, that's it, that's the look I, I want. I want to that beautiful. <laughs> right. <laughs> they wrote yellow Chris, after watching Mary <laughs> Chris Martin was like, I need that jacket. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but she just looks, I mean, she's kind of one of those actresses where the camera never hits her at a bad angle. Yeah. She's yeah. like Ingrid Bergman in that way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in that way, yes. <laughs> in that way, not in, pretty much not in any other that. way. Yeah. Uh, but, and then, um, my true love, uh, sorry, Paolo, uh, Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Platt is in this, um, it's his film debut. And like, is it, really, it's his first movie? Yeah, first movie? yeah, yeah film debut that. for Baby yeah. Platt. In a very, very slight role, but he's, like, kind of charming and, like, uh, And he's still, like, movie. yeah, he's still, like, like, um... Schlubby. Yeah, schlubby. <laughs> I love it. I just love how, like, goofy he always looks. He's so endearing, even yeah. in, like, the smallest little role. Yeah. I mentioned this during the movie, but anytime I see Oliver Platts in a movie, I'm never like, oh, I wish he wasn't in this. I'm always like, oh, oh Oliver. <laughs> Ollie. <laughs> so nice to see you again. <laughs> and then also we've got Dean Stockwell, who is... The lead gangster. In an Oscar-nominated role. <laughs> yes, Tony the Tiger. Tony Russo. Great. I wish he had won an Oscar just so somebody would have said that his performance was great. <laughs> I really wish you could remember that song that they said. I mean, if the he would have won, song. they would have played that like Tony's here, Tony the Tiger song that that guy plays when he walks in the bar. Not a bar. The medieval restaurant. Yeah, King, like some King's Roost. I think it was called King's Roost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where all the gangsters got out of meetings, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, bring it back. That's, like, one of the many weird, stupid, amazing details of this movie. There's it's so all... many great well, locations. And, and there's a moment, too, I just, I just, there's like another a perfect example, just, like, a totally random detail. There's a plot point in which uh, Michelle Pfeiffer just has to end up in the place where she gets a job and normally in the movie it would be just like so she's walking down the street she's tried a bunch of things and this is the last place and she gets hired or something equally generic like that but instead she walks up to a man named mr spoons who's like <laughs> clacking spoons together and playing like a spoon song and he has a big box that says mr spoons and she asks him and he's like oh right over there and he's clacking spoons and it's called like chicken licking yeah and by the way i looked up that guy and on imdb he's his his real name is mr spoons <laughs> <laughs> so he's playing himself in the movie. <laughs> just, just so the listeners are clear, it's like he's a spoon performer. Yeah. I guess, on, like, the, on street. the street. Yeah, he's like yeah. doing tricky things. This is set in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's like, I feel like, do they drive from Jersey? To I think, yeah. yeah. Like it begins in like, Jersey. It's a bunch like, of Italian people. It has to be Jersey. Yeah, right. The mob ridden <laughs> suburbs of New Jersey. But then she goes into Chicken Lickin'. 
asks for a job, but when she gets in there, there's a guy who's holding a chick statue, and he's making the chick statue kiss a rooster statue. Like, for as, some as, reason. So, like, Michelle Pfeiffer is sitting at the man's desk, and, like, the man is just, like, making these fake chickens. Why kiss. Why does a man who owns a restaurant called Chicken Lickin have an office? <laughs> Point one. Yeah, it's, like a, it's a fully decorated office. Yeah, it's like a back room. It's, like, very But dedicated. also, his office uh, also dubs as a dressing room for people who are trying to get a job, and he has a peephole. Which so indicates that there's look. another room <laughs> behind his weird office. Yeah. He's wasting a lot of restaurant space. That's when she has an oil painting of chicken licking that he peers through. Like, somebody painted that. Somebody I, bet, I bet he did. Anyway, I feel like this is not going to make sense to anyone who has not seen the movie. Yeah, this is a real... You kind of have to... I mean, either listen to our just rambling and then watch the movie and see it for yourself, or... Wait and then listen to this episode and be like, yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. And I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to skip ahead, but I would say that my main takeaway from this movie is just the visual content of the movie. It's not the writing. It's not. It's not really like. I mean, the directing is is good and the acting is really good, but the the visuals is what really makes this movie stand out. Oh yeah, and I'm really glad you actually mentioned Palm Beach Story earlier because really early on, I kind of. I kind of figured out that this movie is basically a screwball comedy. If you're going to yeah. really try to put it in a genre, but screwball comedy, especially Preston Sturgis type screwball comedy, is so much defined by its screenplay over everything else. Mm-hmm. And this movie, because the screenplay is very typical, the screwball comedy element comes entirely through the atmosphere mm-hmm. of the movie. The performances, the production right. design, the musical choices, it just kind of like overwhelms you with goofiness and so like no matter people are getting murdered and there's like yeah, there's like yeah. implied Gosh, it's menace it's so washed over yeah them. but it's just yeah it doesn't matter it's like yeah we know it's there but like you don't you don't want to see people die in this movie nobody is evil enough to that you you want to see them suffer you just kind of like Oh, that I guess that guy's gone from the movie <laughs> right. now. Like, yeah, yeah, when they killed the guy, the cross-eyed guy, I was yeah. like, "Oh, that's too bad." <laughs> like Dean Stockwell was the main villain. Yeah, it's like just if you take it on face value, is it like absolutely reprehensible monster? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like murders like his like top lieutenant and his their co-lover, and then he tries to make and then out tries to like, his... make out with his <laughs> widow. It's like he's a horrible man, but he's like kind of like it's like goofy and delightful. He's at got the same a sense time. of humor. It's a, it's a cartoonish menace. It's like yeah. it's like a wily coyote a cartoon where you're like you know the coyote just wants to kill and eat the roadrunner <laughs> the whole time, but because it's so silly, it like never actually settles in your brain that anything bad could happen. Yeah. It just it's it, there's uh, and Jonathan Dummy doesn't show blood he'll show people getting shot but it'll just be like very quick he doesn't try to glamorize violence at all yeah the movie opens with a murder yeah Yeah. and even moments with like nudity like when nancy travis is naked he shoots her in a way that's like he like focuses on her face or like just is like very tasteful it could be i don't know especially in an 80s movie (laughs) it'd be so easy to just like make it leery and creepy and he really doesn't like he really just even though it's like it's an R-rated movie and it earns its R rating, it like really tries to be as clean cut and friendly and enjoyable as possible mm-hmm. while being just like 
secretly twisted. He's <laughs> like, yeah, profoundly. So another person who's in this movie is Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin is Michelle Pfeiffer's husband in the movie. His name is Frank the Cucumber. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, DeMarco. Right? And yeah, DeMarco, and uh, he he gets murdered within the first what. 20 minutes. minutes, yeah. Yeah, so he's he's not really in the movie. He does a great job when he is in the movie. Um, it's prime, like, hot Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, the reason I wanted to bring up Alec Baldwin is because I found out um, through the trivia that the screenwriters of this movie, they rewrote this movie six times Whoa, in order geez. to entice Tom Cruise to take the Alec Baldwin role. Really? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> to, Tom Cruise to take, like, kind of a bit role? Like, it's killed off at the very yeah. yeah. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. Also, he would have just been so miscast yeah. in this movie. Tom Cruise putting on, like, a shitty accent because Tom Cruise <laughs> could not do any accent. But yeah. Tom Cruise decided to make cocktail and so yes. <laughs> and the rest is history. The rest is. <laughs> That's a really good trivia. Yeah. Cough time. Yeah, very weird. I don't. I. I don't know why they really wanted Tom Cruise to be in this movie. Also, Tom Cruise and Michelle Pfeiffer would have had no chemistry. Oh, no. She. She can create chemistry with pretty much anybody. I mean, she does it in Greece too. She does it with Harrison Ford and What Lies Beneath. <laughs> is that chemistry? Harrison Ford's like his evil man. <laughs> Whoa, spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I seen What Lies Beneath 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. God, Wade. Okay, well, alright, so... Yeah, maybe no chemistry with Tom Cruise, but her actual romantic interest in the movie, Matthew Modine, Ugh. is like... He's pretty much, he's the, he's the weak link in the he movie. Is the weak he link. is the weak link. Yeah. He, uh, what, what was that show where they voted people? The weakest link. link. Oh, no, <laughs> so good. Goodbye, Modine. <laughs> Goodbye. My, I kept comparing him to different types of bland food choices. Yeah, well, we, had, we were going through. You had a vanilla pudding. Yes, he was like, vanilla pudding. Uh, you said bagel. His face looks like a bagel. <laughs> I thought, he's kind of like when you put mayo on a sandwich, but then you eat the sandwich and you forget the mayo. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Paula, do you have any food comparisons to Matthew Modine? No, face I mean... Face or just, you know, well, I got so thrown off because of all the people who call him dog face. <laughs> <laughs> which like hey, dog face. Yeah, like I mean he's certainly plain, but plain does not indicate dog face. And, and it's so weird too, again, how clean this movie weirdly is, is the first time he gets called dog face, he like he's on a bus, he's tailing Michelle Pfeiffer, and he climbs up onto the roof and jumps from the roof of the bus onto a U-Haul truck, and the U-Haul truck driver's like, watch it, dog face! <laughs> and this is New York City in the 80s. Like, right. I feel like somebody even say, like, watch like, uh, watch it, fuckhead, or something like yeah. that would be like... Yeah, I mean, it's our Very <laughs> Yeah, there's like, a bunch of F-bombs yeah. dropped in the movie. I think that just goes back to, like, the goofiness of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Where they, they do silly things, like, the whole... High five between Oliver Platt's character and Matthew Modine, the bingo. The one how they touch elbows first and then slowly rise their, raise their yeah. hands up to touch. Paolo and I have been trying to make that a thing we do. <laughs> we forget <laughs> for, long, for months bingo. and it comes back every once in a while. Well, and also I didn't realize that like until watching it this time that Michelle Pfeiffer and her son have that like weird little, not high five, but they like 
touch oh, each other. Oh, it's from E.T. Yeah, oh, that's the E.T. reference. I, I've never seen E.T. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, so. Whoa. I told you that story in... In, I almost saw it in Catholic school, and we got like half an hour Catholic into school. it in Catholic school because it was like a reward because we were good that semester or whatever. And it got to the scene where uh, Drew Barrymore says like, "Watch it, penis breath," or to what to her brother. And the nun at our school was in the room at the time, and so she was just like, "Oh well," and she walked out of the room. And our like two minutes later, our principal came in and like ejected it from the VCR and then like walked out of the room with it. And we I, we never we didn't get to watch a new movie or anything it was just the that's end. it and like I never seen yeah. the rest of so you don't even know what happens I to know e. what happens to E.T. I know <laughs> everything yeah. that happens to E.T. Well, okay. I know the, the guns are replaced with walkie talkies and they ride the bike over the moon <laughs> that's how Amblin Entertainment was created there you go. Yeah. end of Spielberg. story yeah. well so anyway Michelle Pfeiffer and her son they touch fingers and they go, be good, which is a direct reference from E.T. touching, what's Elliot? Yeah. Elliot's oh, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Paolo. Thanks, guys. Don't need to see it. Definitely not. Also, there's the, um, the, uh, you're blowing my mind. Yeah, <laughs> Before Tony the Tiger kills Frank DeMarco. Yeah. Tony, you're blowing my mind. Also, the best part is. Alec Baldwin is in a black Speedo <laughs> when he says it. So not only is he saying, you're blowing my mind before he gets murdered, but you get the visual of him in like a black Speedo in front of a jacuzzi. In, in well, which like the, oh, they're co-lovers. Yeah, yeah, there's like a dead, dead hooker yeah. or whatever. She's not a hooker. Well, She's okay, waitress. Waitress, yeah. <laughs> waitress who's sleeping with multiple people from a medieval feast <laughs> restaurant. And like, like using the same room, just like waiting for her to come in. It's pretty skeezy. Yeah. Um, anyway, Matthew Modine. To go back to like our original tangent. Uh, he he is the reason I think that this is so clearly a screwball comedy. Because yeah. he's got he's got the pants that go above the belly button. He's doing he's holding this tie and like shaking it back and forth. Right. Doing ooh, the like ooh, ooh. Ooh. he he winks at people throughout the film. It's, yeah. it's like he's doing an impression of a schmuck. Yeah. yeah. Really. It's weird. It's like... But he's an FBI agent. I know. It's really bizarre. And it's like so weirdly mannered in a way where it's not like he's just being too goofy. It's like a person trying to put on goofiness who's never like... Who's only seen it on TV isn't like inherently goofy. But it's not like everyone else sees him that way. Everyone sees him as, like, just, like, a normal person, and we watch it, and he's doing those weird, like, w like winks, and just, like, making weird noises, and his dancing is inexplicable. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, everything he's doing just is, like, such a choice, and such a strange choice to the point where, like, his, he is so screwy that it's, like, too screwy for a movie where literally every element is, like, <laughs> popping out at you. And it's like, if, he was a, if there was a better actor in that role, he could sell it and make it funny, but it's like but Matthew Modine. Who, <laughs> who would have been better? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Who was, like, a baby face in the late 80s? God, you know what? I think I made a mistake. I think that they wanted Tom Cruise to be the... Ma the Matthew Modine. That would make a bit more way, sense. Yeah, but he would be... He still would be too intense. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's, like, he doesn't have the, the like, hokiness. He yeah. can't play silly. Yeah, Matthew Modine, if it weren't for his acting, he's perfect for the role. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got the look. Yeah. He's got the look you need. It's just Matthew Modine is, like, the most uncompelling screen presence yeah. Yeah. in this movie by far. Yeah. 
God, I'm trying to think of who would have been like the 80s goofy person to be yeah. in that movie. It's tough. I can't think. I, I was trying to think of someone through the whole movie. Maybe like Bill Murray. No, no, not in that era. He's Bill Murray was still a smartass in the yeah. 90s. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, maybe Rick Moranis. <laughs> Rick Moranis. He's not enough of a romantic lead, though. Yeah, and he's not good enough looking to like really be feasible with Michelle. Fiverr. No, Michelle Pfeiffer would be like, get away, <laughs> fuck off, Rick Moranis. <laughs> also, he's shorter than her, I think. <laughs> anyway, to be continued, maybe it was like during this discussion we could think of. Well, and another another thing that really draws attention to to how weird Matthew Modine is in this movie is just the cavalcade of cameos. <laughs> so, like, people that you... Mostly people from other Jonathan Demi movies, but just, like, people that you've seen before just popping up in bit parts and doing, like, really good, interesting little one-off roles, like Chris Isaac as the clown at Burger Town. And, uh, it's Burger World! Yeah, Tony, it's Burger World. World. Sorry. Uh, because they say, Hello! Uh, <laughs> hello, hola. Hola. howdy, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Burger World. Right, thanks, Burger World. And then they sing that jingle. Yeah, there you go. Burger World. I can't remember the jingle, but yeah. But uh, yeah, that's Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac. Oh, man. Well, and Todd Salons. Very Todd briefly Salons, at the yeah. very end. We talked about our last episode, Todd Salons, yeah. yeah. Um, the grandpa from the Monsters. Yeah, so weird. Oh, uh, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> That, like, when you, like, told me that, yeah. I was, like, well, like <laughs> fucked with my head. Yeah. Like, Why is he in this movie? And he, I looked him up on IGV, and he's like, he has no credits. He's <laughs> like, monsters, and then just, like, B, like, beach party movies, and then, um... And then, and then just, movie. like, one good movie. <laughs> well, and Joan Cusack is in, like, the first 15 minutes. Yeah, Joan Cusack and Olan Jones, who is, um... She's in, like, Beetlejuice and mm -hmm. uh, Mars Attacks... Uh, she's Lucas Haas's mom in Mars Attacks. Uh, oh, and man. she's she's also in Community. She's the mom of Garrett at <gasps> Garrett's wedding. Oh my god! Uh, so yeah, she's like just people who like you see in stuff <laughs> and who are really great. You're uh, blowing my mind! <laughs> 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 and even just like Paul Lazar, uh, the cross-eyed guy who uh, from Silence of the Lambs. Well, and we haven't talked about Mercedes Rule. Oh yeah, Mercedes Rule. I think Mercedes Rule. She's great. She is one of like, the really underappreciated actresses of the '80s and early yeah. '90s. Like some, I don't know why she stopped getting work. Maybe just because like Ital tall Italian women didn't really get a lot of roles after the yeah. '80s. But, I think Cher stole a lot of roles. Yeah, from oh her God, yeah. You're right. Cher. But Mercedes, Mercedes Rule is so good in a role that like really could be, like, a totally thankless, shitty role. Especially yeah. for a woman. Kind of offensive. Yeah. Like, it's not like the crazy. Like, a shrill, like, jealous yeah. woman. But, like, at the same time, like... She Jack plays it with such power. And, yeah. yeah, she is the most powerful, frightening character to all the other characters in the movie. She's human. Like, Jonathan Demi gives her the moment where she's like, I'm a ball buster, that's who I am. Where it's like, yeah, she's still tough and scary and crazy, but... She's like being honest. Yeah, everybody, she's more aware. Yeah, she's aware. Everybody else in the movie has some sort of like double life or a lie they have to keep up. And she's the only person who like bursts in the room and is like, this is what I want! This is what I'm looking for! Tell me now! <laughs> also, they even give her that line where, where they say, um, uh, Tony the tiger is afraid of his wife. We don't know why, but... It verges on the pathological. Yeah, he's, <laughs> she, he's the only person he's afraid of and... 
Yeah, very true. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's a real, she's like an amazing, she just steals every scene that she shows up uh. in. She's she's just like a force of nature. And that's why, that's why she's so great in Fisher King and the very few other movies she turns up she's in. She's in Big. Big, Minus Man. She always is just like really just, I don't know, she, I don't see enough of her to really have like a good theory as to why she's so great other than she just... She knows how to make material believable, mm-hmm. uh, especially ter- in, a, in a Terry Gilliam movie to ground a performance and make her, her like she's the person who is believably dating a, a Howard Stern ex shock jock and like <laughs> who is an alcoholic, a suicidal alcoholic, and you believe that this woman could love him and hate him and feel like all these complicated things about her life and her life with him and all this stuff. Well, I think when, in, yeah. when you're sucking, I think you kind of hit upon why she's so great in this movie and that she can like, sh- she's able to embody so many different emotions and thoughts interacting. Yeah. I mean like in, 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 in uh, Married to the Mob, I think she's certainly like comedic relief kind of in the yeah. movie, but she's also kind of terrifying. You know what I mean? And she can like, yeah. she kind of like inhabits like these very like, polarized like reactions and you laugh she, and you're also kind of like oh, Jesus. and she she lands a joke while crying at one point right like when she's getting the plane ticket after she finds out that Tony <laughs> give me is, the fucking ticket <laughs> dickhead <laughs> she's crying she doesn't mug or anything she looks miserable and upset she's selling both sadness and anger and lands a joke right. that's so cool I love that she can do that let's okay. talk about the music yeah, yeah David Byrne does the music to this movie. Yeah, David Byrne did the score. He is, in case you don't know, the lead singer of the Talking Heads. Or is it just Talking Heads? Is there a the in front of Talking It's heads? just Talking Heads. Okay, yeah, I cool. thought so. But I still said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the reaction, right? You say every band, the something. Yeah. Um, and then I noticed that every scene where there could be music, or like someone performing music, there is someone performing oh, yeah, music. Yeah. Like Mr. Spoons, we already talked about. Whenever anyone goes on a date, it's at a restaurant or a place where live music is mm. being performed. And Demi shows the performance. Right? Oh it's, yeah, it's not in the background. They get their own shots. There's the first time you see when um, Matthew Modine and Michelle Pfeiffer on their their date. Um, when they when we cut to the restaurant, we don't cut to them. We don't follow them in. It starts on the band, pulls out as we see the whole band performing. We see people dancing. Then we see the leads of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also that scene where um, Matthew Modine is following Michelle Pfeiffer and he uh, camouflages by becoming a part of a street acapella group. (laughs) Uh, There's also that... um, even when there isn't music playing, like there's that scene where Dean Stockwell is in the car and they're driving to Burger World, they sing the Burger World jingle. Yeah, right. Like there's just music in every single part of this movie. Didn't you say that he started in music videos? Or um, he has like a bit, I know he has no, a big fountain. He, he started in exploitation movies. Oh but, uh, yeah, just, Roger Corman. Uh, yeah, right? he did a bunch of like prison movies. Specifically, like women in prison movies, or oh, like man. like his first like three or four Damn movies me. are women in prison movies. I think one of them's called Hot Sex. No, it's, <laughs> one's called Crazy Mama, and I think that's the one that's just closely. <laughs> and, uh, there's there, but they're all supposed to be like really renowned for the fact they're like women in prison movies that are well directed and like 
treat the women with a little bit of respect. <laughs> so like, like, more so than most prison A mote of respect. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, he, it's just, like, it's a thing in his movies. Like, one of the defining traits of a Jonathan Demme movie, and Jonathan Demme, I would argue, is on a tour like William Friedkin in the fact that it's really tough. He doesn't shove it in your face, but once you see enough, you start to notice the trends, and pretty much the defining one is music. He always finds a way to make music a part of everything. So, like, Rachel Getting Married is the best example, because in Rachel Getting Married, there's, like, one house where all the events take place in, and during the first, like, two, two days, like, the three days that the movie takes place over, the band for the wedding is rehearsing constantly throughout the whole movie. And so people will walk through a room and there's, like, just music playing. No and matter who's, what's going And remind me who's in the band. Well, it's just, like, people. It's just, oh, like, okay. like, the score of the movie is yeah. just the people who did the score instead of composing and adding it later, they're just playing live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then also... Rachel is marrying the lead singer of um, TV on the, the radio, and Robin Hitchcock and Sister Carol East, Sister Carol East, the barber from this movie, are both, they both perform at the wedding, yeah. and the dad, Rachel's dad, is in the music industry, and there's that guy who does the drum solo for yeah. when the bride walks down the aisle, and all that stuff, it's like packed in there. He did Stop Making Sense, which is just like one of the definitive music movies, Silence of the Lambs incorporates music constantly. Whenever you're at Buffalo Bill's house, he's always listening to music. Stuff like that. Just I can go on. But every, Philadelphia, you said? Philadelphia, there's a lot of musical performances. And even during the court case, Denzel Washington refers to sex as making flippy floppy, which is a talking head song. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, and, um... And a Talking Head song is performed at, like, a party for Tom Hanks when everyone knows he's dying. Right. And actually, that was a weird thing. During this movie, during the scene, essentially, where, like, Matthew Modine starts to fall for Michelle Pfeiffer and not see her as a criminal, but as, like, a person, Goodbye Horses is, like, very quietly <laughs> playing in the scene. And this is before Silence of the Lambs. In, in Silence of the Lambs, um, Buffalo Bill is listening to Goodbye Horses and he like very famously like does the scene where he like tucks his penis between his legs and like dances in front of the mirror, like fantasizing about what he's going to look like. Mm -hmm. And it's, and so Jonathan Demi used that song once and was like, I gotta use it again. It's too good. And then that woman who sings Goodbye Horses shows up in Philadelphia and sings a talking head song. Yeah, she sings heaven. And so it's just like, it's so insane the level at which he commits to having like music be a part of his world. But it's like... A- but not even that. It's like people who are in the music industry are a part of the world because yeah. even musicians show up in his movies. Like Chris Isaac, for some reason, yeah. is cast in this movie. <laughs> really, and, really yeah. shrewd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he gives, he gives a lot of like, I mean, I don't know how exactly Jonathan Demme is involved with the music industry, but he has a lot of friends who aren't actors, and he finds a way to, like, give them roles that are perfect for their limited skill sets. And it's, yeah, it's just, like, one of the really charming elements. It makes it makes his movies feel so warm and, and, and comfortable to be in because you can tell he's, like, surrounding himself with people he likes. And he wants you to like these people, too, so he mm-hmm. casts people he likes to play people that he wants you to like. I just talk about the score itself. I kind of love it. I yeah. love David yeah. Byrne. It's like, it's like very 
Very subtle. Very subtle. Very out of the way. Um, yeah. When like I mean, so in the movie when music's not kind of happening organically in the scene, that's kind of when David Byrne's kind of score kind of seeps in to the background, and it's used really effectively. Yeah. Um, it's like very moody, subtle music, and it kind of like still really eighties. Very still very very eighties, <laughs> but it's used like in like really great moments, like when Michelle Pfeiffer is uh, is finding her job, mm-hmm. like the music kind of heightens like slowly and quietly um it builds a little bit when she walks into the the barber shop um that's used well yeah but it never overtly underlines what's happening it does the it does the thing of just being like adding to the atmosphere instead Mm -hmm. of like telling you what the atmosphere should be and actually i just thought about this too but this is the year after david byrne won an oscar for best score for the last emperor Oh really? Yeah. So huh. I guess he's just like he was on a roll at that What's point. What's that movie? It's um. It's a. It's a about the. Yeah, you is do it a better about job. The last <laughs> emperor? It's about the last emperor of China, right? So it's, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's last uh, emperor of the, the the Qing dynasty. It's about like this four year old boy who right. becomes the emperor, oh. and it's from the director of Last Tango in Paris. Right. It's oh, like, okay. It's like probably the weirdest best picture winner in history like i don't understand how like everybody agreed that that was their favorite movie that year but somehow it happened bravo david byrne got an oscar for it cool he needs to you got he could he really could he could pull it off he's gotta have a grammy right you would think right gotta gotta have a grammy i mean i got an oscar yeah Tony, he should just write a, a musical about about Talking Heads music. He can follow Talk, that trend. Talking about it. <laughs> talk about talking it. <laughs> what we talk yeah. about when we talk about Talking Heads. It should just be called Burning Down the House, and then at the end of the musical every night, they just burn the, the piano down and they have to move locations. Every... every <laughs> hyper-realism. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. Let's see. What Oh... I one scene that I particularly loved, and I th- I think I loved it because of the directing, was when Tony the Tiger figures out that the FBI is on to him. Yeah. Mm. So um, Michelle Pfeiffer and Dean Stockwell they go to this hotel in Miami. I don't know why they went to Miami. Because he was supposed to meet up with the people who were trying to murder him. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. So they go to Miami. They're entering this hotel and. Dean Stockwell sees Matthew Modine enter the hotel, and he kind of cocks his head like like a dog who's who's like, what? what? What's going on? And Jonathan Demi directs it in a way where Matthew Modine enters the scene wearing one costume, then he enters again wearing a different costume, another costume, another costume, and then finally he enters within the costume that Dean Stockwell is like, oh, that's how I know that guy. And it's such a a clever way to play out that kind of mental process. Mm -hmm. But also, on top of that, he even has Mercedes Rule uh, show up in the, you know, mental process, and she says, oh, yeah, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, checking up up with that guy or some schlubby guy. And... Dean Stockwell, you can see Dean Stockwell just making the connection. Right, right. I just loved the way that that played out. It's like a, it's like a wonderfully clear look into his thought process. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and the way the camera kind of swoops around after the last, you know, Matthew Modine comes through the door. Um, and, like, Tony is reflected in the mirror. Yeah. And it pans away from the mirror back to where he originally was, where he's still thinking. Um, yeah, it's a really great scene. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
I'll always go to bat for Jonathan Demme's directing, and especially here, there's like, for a movie that is this slight and just this playful and fun, he does do a lot of really smart directing. Mm -hmm. uh, two shots that I want to point out, or two scenes. Uh, the first is when, when Matthew Modine and Michelle Pfeiffer first meet, and they meet in that elevator, Mich uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is holding a chair that literally is not important. It's never in the movie any other scene. So the only reason for that chair to be there is so that when they cut back and forth during essentially what's their meet cute scene, mm -hmm. it's shot through bars. Right. And it's a cop meeting the criminal he's pursuing for the first time, yeah. cutting back and forth between bars. Yeah. And just something like that. It's just like that that scene, the meet cute scene is so easy and so boring, and it's just like a nice way to like make it strange and also with a point. But there's a, the other thing, and this is just like really small, but in the in that last in the little dream sequence at the end where Tony is uh, gets his dick shot off uh, <laughs> when when he goes to go to the bathroom uh, when he asks like if the cops if they can let him go to the bathroom before they take him to jail he walks into uh, just uh, he opens the door walks in the bathroom and the camera as it like turns to follow him it turns at an angle so the shot ends on like a very subtle but a definite Dutch angle. And the, the whole point of the Dutch angle is to suggest that something is off. And in that scene, it's just such like a, like a, it, it, that there's no way that you would know that it's a dream sequence and anything was happening. But he just, it's that little moment that just kind of just subtly is just there to remind you that like there's something off about this, something weird is about to happen, uh, just kind of mildly psychologically readying you. And that's like, I know it's like really fundamental directing, but it's, it's so easy to just overuse Dutch angles because they look cool. Like that's a very <laughs> '90s thing. It's like completely blow the them out of proportion. But I don't know. It just like his directing is subtle but smart mm -hmm. all the way through. That's really what I love about him. Um, the one scene at the very beginning that's really great when you're first introduced to Michelle Pfeiffer's character in the beauty parlor and kind of all the, the gangster whites kind of swarm around her and the camera kind of <laughs> spins around everybody, yeah. especially Michelle Pfeiffer, just like really puts you in her shoes and you feel like how harried she is and sick of this life. Mm -hmm. So it's like subtle stuff like that. It's kind of throughout the movie. Yeah, and I couldn't help but think during that scene if like Tarantino saw that and kind of ripped it off for um, Death Proof. When the girls are sitting at the... In Death Proof, there's a scene where, like, uh, the second group of girls are having breakfast, and they're talking, and it's kind of our way to, like, be introduced to all of them, and he films it by just having the camera swirl around them as they mm -hmm. have a conversation, pretty much even in the exact direction that the shot spits and married to the mob, and so I wouldn't put it past him, but yeah, it's... It's a good thing to steal. It's like Married to the Mom seems like a movie that Tarantino would like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pure kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and such attention to detail. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Right. And um, it's a mob movie. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, isn't the swirling kind of, isn't there a kind of a swirling camera sequence in Respar Dogs at the breakfast table? It's, not, it's, yes. a, it's a different. It's a different kind of swirl because in, in where they're all they argue about whether they should tipping, tip. right? Yeah. So that, that one, the camera's in the middle of the table and it's you know circling yeah. around. And this one, the camera's on the outside of the circle, kind of going around yeah. the group of women. Um, I guess it's kind of similar. Um, so uh, this is just a little bit of trivia, but I found out that Dean Stockwell stayed in character the whole time they were filming <laughs> this movie. <laughs> And it was worth it. He's nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, I mean, he got an Apparently. Oscar, not, but yeah. 
How weird. So I mean, weird. I also don't feel like his character was that big of a stretch for him. I mean, no. he's playing it was a straight game. He's good. I mean, he's really good. Oh, yeah, good. he's yeah. great. in the movie. Yeah, but he's great. Yeah. But it's not Oscar-worthy. It's not no. an Oscar-worthy for And no. especially, especially just the person he lost to for Best Supporting Actor that year was Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. It was amazing. is one of the most incredible comedic performances yeah, ever. it's incredible. It's, and so, like, it just really draws God, attention always... to how, how, like, not, I don't want to. I don't want to cheapen Dean Stockwell's performance here, but it's not a stretch for someone of his experience to nail a part that's basically just like subtle, friendly menace. Yeah, <laughs> and it's very consistently held. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. have an arc really or anything to like change through. He just has to basically show up and be powerful. Well, we still like him. And he does it. He nails it. But it's not tough. It's not yeah. best top five performances of the year. the depths of some, like, What year was that? 88? 88. 88, yeah. Yeah, and he's up against, that year, the other actors he's up against are, like, Alec Guinness. And, <laughs> and Little Doran. Yeah. And uh, River Phoenix and Running on Empty. Such a, and, oh, Mark Landau. And Tucker, the man in his dream. Man, was 88 a bad year? 88's a great year. I and mean, those are, I mean, Tucker is Coppola. It's, oh, a, yeah. really, it's supposed to be a really good movie. And Running on Empty is Sidney Lumet. Mm. And so those are both probably good movies. And I can't vouch for Little Dorrit. I think that movie's like four and a half hours long. It should anyway. have to be. Yeah. <laughs> to film Annie Dickens' novel. <laughs> yeah. And so, but like, yeah, none of those performances are legendary performances. Oh. It, I mean, but, Kevin Klein's is good. Oh, yeah. Kevin Klein's won. definitely. But like, the, it's, it's like one of those, it's like every year at the Oscars where you're like, well, clearly this person's going to win. And these are all like... <laughs> Pity nominations. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fine. Which white guy will win this year? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maybe we can stop and like talk about the only part of a movie that I really dislike, and that's like Michelle Pfeiffer's character walking into the Jamaican barber shop and kind of like being uh, revitalized yeah. by the poor minorities. Yeah. It's such a stupid, horrible <laughs> yeah. trope that persists to this day. And I just, like, it's, why? Filmmakers, just, like, find some other way for this person to, like, reinvent their lives. And not, like, just, like, sucking the life out of poor people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ugh. Though, thankfully, after that scene, they don't really, like, they they could make it worse. That's, like, a very 80s thing to, like, date. Like, she, Sister yes. Carol Ace could have showed up and saved everybody at the end or something really Definitely. stupid. And it basically just... She's like, uh, yeah, I'll give you a job. And she's like, thank you so much for the job. And then she's just like, kind of, they're just her boss. Yeah, they don't yeah. like, I mean, they, 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 he makes it clear that they're Jamaican, but he doesn't like make it so they're like, they're garishly, ridiculously Jamaican. Yeah. You know it's, what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely, I, and, and there's no way that they wrote that part for a Jamaican woman. So it's definitely a little bit of, Demi's fault on that part yeah. because not only yeah, like the huge Bob Marley flag <laughs> in the background yeah. and everything, uh, but I kind of forgot that part existed in the movie when we were watching it again this time. But I I knew there was going to be some kind of I remembered it being some kind of minority character, and on the hiring sign. Uh, it was in English and Spanish. And so I was like, oh, is this a Spanish barbershop? <laughs> At first. And then when she walked in and it was, you know, like this Jamaican woman, I was like, I, I don't remember this. <laughs> I'm curious. Well, and, and I will say, though, at the same time during that scene, I was like, oh, wow, this movie... 
very easily passes the Bechdel test of like um, oh yeah and again referring back to like 80s trends it's always impressive when an 80s movie passes the Bechdel test because that seems like that had to be the worst <laughs> decade for that uh, but like it repeatedly again like the most powerful person is a woman and then the protagonist is a woman mm-hmm. and she works for a woman and the main even though like there's like Dean Stockwell is I guess the antagonist he's not really as important as the battle between Michelle Pfeiffer and Mercedes Rule in the long run it like yeah. very much right. is yeah. and, and that had to but they're been, fighting and they're fighting over men. they're fighting over men yeah. so I can't really yeah but at the same time they don't have conversations every when they all it has to do to pass the Bechtel test is have a conversation about something other than a man, a man and her talking with Sister they do talk about lot. their jobs and uh, the early scenes where they're just trying to get her to hang out, be part of the family. They do talk about Tony a lot. They do talk about Tony a lot. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying that it's, like, the most amazing portrayal of women in the yeah. history of film. But it does... Uh, it's definitely a, another thing to give credit to Jonathan Demi for is, like, really seeing his characters as people and so even though they are talking about men or uh they're mobsters or whatever everybody is a human being in this movie yeah uh, even like little bit parts like that one mobster who dies in the last series like you didn't have to do that mike <laughs> like, <laughs> stuff like that or, like nobody He's dies on a like a sad note they always sign a note where you're like i'll miss that guy <laughs> <That's>, uh, yeah <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> just in case you don't know, very like low stakes in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Even when people are getting murdered, which makes it all the more delightful. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with all the things you said about it. It still doesn't excuse the fact. Oh no, no. no. I, I have to acknowledge that Demi does try to make a difference, and he's not totally successful, but he does improve in later movies. You do see that, like, as his career goes on, it's. He doesn't tend to do some of these things that you see in his earlier works that might be more tied to his, like, exploitation upbringing, where he just kind of shorthands stuff. Mm. Especially, like, Rachel getting married is, like, a a very, very successful portrayal of women without overly relying on the fact that it's about the marriage or anything. It's, like, the Sydney in Rachel getting married is such a secondary character to everything else. And, yeah, it's... Okay, yeah, I'm not trying to say sexism has been killed by America. Jonathan Demi single-handedly <laughs> destroyed sexism <laughs> yeah, with Married to the Mob. <laughs> Just trying to give credit where credit is due. Any any uh, minor accomplishment in the 80s is at least worth pointing out, I feel like. Like, you know, just like completely veer off. It's like the same thing I'd say with like Die Hard being well-directed. Die Hard is not... It's the same year, so it's at least a fair jump. Uh, Die Hard is no, like... Why didn't Die Hard get any Oscar noms? It yeah. Did. It did, though. But all for, like, technical stuff. Oh. But, like, Die Hard is a perfect example of a movie that is, like, way better directed than it has any right to be, especially for that era of action movies. And it doesn't mean that it's the best directed thing in the world, but... I mean, it's yeah. the greatest action movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my humble opinion. Yeah. Oh, snap. But I mean, I, the portrayal of women is far worse in, no, in uh, yeah. than it is in Mary I guess I, 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 what I should say is... I'm and the hairstyles are way worse. It's definitely true. Michelle rocking it in this movie. Oh, she's killing it in every way. Miss McClain. I don't even know what the actress's name is. 
Yes. Bonnie Bedelia. Okay. See, but, I'm not helping. <laughs> but I'm going to stop digging myself in this weird hole that I put myself in. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to, like... <laughs> but, uh, I, don't, I, I mean... don't know what I'm arguing, so, yeah. I think you're just argu- arguing with yourself. Yeah, I'm just, like, trying to say, like, marriage and love is good, but marriage and love has bad elements. I, it can have both. I don't know why. Like, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's no need to defeat myself on this one. Okay. It's a delightful movie. Shake it's my, bad shake my own hand. <laughs> <laughs> you agree to disagree yeah. with yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, speaking of 88 being... We were just saying kind of 88, so what kind of weird off year for movies this yeah. was. But Die Hard was in that year. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Robert Zemeckis' best movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, By far. I, where do we all agree with this? Yeah. Well, in 88, I hate to bring this up, Brain Damage came out. <laughs> <laughs> and Akira. And oh, God. All right, never mind. Akira. 88 is actually a really, really good incredible year. year. I was going to say, I don't mind. know 88 yeah. as well as I know 87. Thin Blue Line came out in 88. Oh, Shit. man. Yeah. Thin Blue Line, which was not nominated for an Oscar that year because it had reenactments in it. And at the time, it was like, well, <laughs> it's not a documentary. <laughs> it's <a> reenactment. <laughs> Jesus God. Christ. There was Do an Errol documentary that pure. <laughs> No, it went. When Errol Morris got his Oscar for Fog of War, the first thing he said was, "Finally!" (laughs) So yeah, he was pissed. (laughs) He was openly resentful about it. Errol Morris. What a bad. Anyway, we don't need to talk about. We we do need to do an Errol Morris movie. Yeah, maybe like an off an off brand Errol Morris. We should do Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. No. Oh man! Well, we could do. That's a really good movie. But. We could do that, or Mr. Death, or we could <gasps> Mr. do Mr. Death. Yeah, I would love to do Mr. Death. Um, because <coughs> the argument that it leads to is really complicated. But also, we could do The Dark Wind, that fiction movie he made with Lou Diamond Phillips about uh, a Native American cop. <laughs> yeah, that's a. It's terrible. It has the most boom mics in any movie that I've ever seen. It has like forty boom mic shots. <laughs> When did, when did this movie appear in his, like, filmography? Like, 1993. It's not like he's established. Yeah. And he made this, like, shitty police. <laughs> it was one of those things where they were like, well, you're a successful uh, documentary filmmaker, so clearly you can just do any kind of movie. Kind of like how the guys who did Paradise Lost uh, end up directing the second Blair Witch Project movie, where they're just oh, like, oh, yeah. that was a documentary horror movie. You guys... <laughs> Did a documentary that had scary stuff in it, so yeah, there we go. You can do it. <laughs> Have fun. And also, the end. Quick tie uh, wrap up the Errol Morris sidetrack. Um, Errol Morris does have a fiction movie coming out this year or next called Holland, Michigan, starring Brian Cranston and Naomi Watts. And so maybe that. Holland, just, Michigan, my hometown. Yeah, so maybe we could just go and do a, a rare theater visit for the podcast or something. Yeah, I'd be down with that. Be fun. Yeah, right. What's Brian Cranston done post Breaking Bad? So he's been. Not he was in a lot of really bad blockbusters. Was he was it? in. Um, he's in Argo. He was, was in Argo. he in Godzilla? He's in Godzilla. He's, in Godzilla. he's good. I mean, he's good in Godzilla. Godzilla's not a very. Good he's movie. in. Do you remember Larry Crown with Tom Hanks? <sighs> He's, oh, he's Julia Roberts' shitty husband in that. Because there's a scene where he's like, like Julia Roberts catches him like watching porn or something. And he's like, I like big knockers. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> terrible, embarrassing performance. He was also in the Mars epic. What am I? Uh, 
He was the voice of one of the aliens in. Uh, oh, John, John Carter. John no, Carter. he's a Civil War soldier at the beginning. Man, oh, we. Right. This is how good Marriage of the Mob is that we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes going off track. <laughs> no, it's just hey. I mean, yeah. I love Brian Cranston. <coughs> I'm interested to see which next yeah. quote unquote serious role he takes. Do you guys know what Jonathan Demme is doing next? No. He's directing a Justin Timberlake concert film. Yeah. What? <laughs> yes, what? man. Ah. Oh, I am pumped. I think it's gonna be great. It could I mean, be really good. Justin Timberlake is a very great performer. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if anything, he can perform. Yeah. So I can't. I mean, I'm just thinking about Stop Making Sense, and then I'm thinking about Justin Timberlake, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> in my brain, it's. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you, you know, Justin Timberlake's not going to do anything as high concept. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It'll be concept. him probably doing a lot of falsetto, wearing a lot of suit suit sets. Three-piece. Three-piece with yeah. ties, because mm-hmm. he's got that suit and tie song. That's <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loved it. Uh, he's also probably going to be looking at a lot of mirrors. Um, <laughs> it's like in a mirror. What else uh, what is he going to do? <laughs> Crank it he, out that dirty He might pot. cry in a river. Uh, <laughs> I hope John and Demi just like literalizes his songs throughout the concert show. That would be great. Um, he might go on a merry-go-round and sing What Goes Around Comes Around. Um, <laughs> what other? a cool camera work. You know? Yeah. yeah. They're okay. The possibilities are endless. We've established that. We're all looking forward to this. Clearly groundbreaking concert <laughs> Justin Timberlake is like the renaissance man of our time. He's not a good enough actor to be called no, the renaissance man. He's not he was good, good in the, the social network as Yes, uh, he's good Sean in the social network. I liked him in Alpha Dog. Uh, oh, it's like sad. Alpha Dog is so sad. But um, I also, uh, I love In Time, even though it's terrible. Oh, he's not great in it. In Time is... Definitely. It's terrible. It's a terrible You ironically movie. love it. Yes, but he, I mean, I just, he's so great. He's again, he's kind of like Oliver Platt, where every time I see him, I'm like, you're here again. It's nice to Ollie. see you. Oh, JT. Right. Well, I, I just had to look this up really quick, because I'm almost positive Jonathan Demme has directed five Neil Young concert films. He's done a lot. He's done a lot. And so part of me is just wondering if, like, the Justin Timberlake movie will end up more like those, where it's just like... I mean, Justin Timberlake doesn't do that kind of music, but I don't know. I just, right, the Neil Young concert films he's done are pretty staid and somber. Yeah. And it's Neil Young. Right. It's a very different. I mean, list. Jonathan Demme is 71. He's old, dude. Yeah. yeah. It's too bad. I didn't think he was that old. You think he still had several decades of film greatness? Yeah, he's kind of like De Palma, where I'm like, What? De Palma, you're already in your 70s. No. De Palma. You still have so much more good work to break out. Does De Palma have more work? I guess guess just three. Uh, De Palma's supposed to be doing another movie, but they haven't named it officially. Also, we need to watch the Jonathan Demme Robin Hitchcock concert movie, too. Because that's really good, because the gimmick for that is that... Yeah, that's so weird. Uh, the Kenny, he did a Kenny Chesney movie also, really? apparently, at some point. Yeah, but why? The concept for the Robin Hitchcock movie, it's called Storefront Hitchcock because they rented out just like a storefront, I want to say in New York, and they made it into like a concert venue, and Robin Hitchcock is standing in like the open, the display window of the store with his back to it, and so you see people like walking by in the street the whole movie, and he's just like facing 
uh, an audience that you never see playing like solo acoustic songs. Huh. This is this really strange atmosphere, and Robin Hitchcock's music is so weird anyway. Yeah. That's that's a really cool one. Um, but yeah, it seems like we really are done <laughs> with the discussion. So no, uh, wait, 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 wait. I want. I had a few more things to say about okay. this movie. So, uh, Married to the Mob had a budget of ten million dollars. Uh, I think all spent on decorations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and on it teal made dolphins. it made twenty one million dollars. Cool. So nice. it doubled his budget. But I mean, that's not that much money, especially in the eighties. Not for inflation. <laughs> that's pretty decent. Yeah. That's probably like up to like fifty million um, plus. For like a modest movie. That's like a, yeah. that's a success. Well, I also found out that Matthew Modine was depressed during the filming of this movie because he had just finished working on Full Metal Jacket. (laughs) (laughs) So he was like super depressed during this movie. And when he first read the script, he didn't think this movie was funny at all. (laughs) <laughs> why am I and he was like well whatever I'll do it comedy <laughs> isn't that weird though it's so weird and I also just love that this era of Jonathan Demi where he's doing this and he did something wild and he did the, a Spalding Gray movie um, he's doing all this stuff and somebody was like you should direct a serial killer movie <laughs> with a British cannibal uh, that is a genius. And so they, he, I, I remember. Oh, reading, and that girl from Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah. and he, I remember reading that. I remember reading that like he did not want to direct. It. He was well, like, yeah. I am not the right person for this. It movie. doesn't seem Clearly like it's was. in his. It was in his wheelhouse. Yeah, but then it's like he really just like bends it to make it make sense, and that's yeah. why like Sons Lambs is way it's. I mean, the book is a piece of shit. Thomas Harris oh, is a no. shitty writer. <laughs> really and he really <laughs> finds a way to, like, invest his humanity into it. Like, there's a lot of... He, I don't know. He just puts a lot of warmth into everything. And Silence of the Lambs could be just pulpy, violent, trash cinema very easily. If you've seen any of the sequels to Silence of oh, the Lambs. Oh, and it would be so easy yeah. to take any character development out of any of those characters. Yeah. And, yeah, he really, like, I think he said somewhere, like, that's, like, ultimately what attracted him to the project is, like, getting into, like, Jodie Foster's character's background and, like, her arc of being this woman who is the the odd man out in the FBI. She's the only woman, really, representing the FBI and um, the way in which she overcomes all that and deals with her limitations and still succeeds in the end. Like, and... Yeah, focusing on her is the right thing, and it really makes that movie great. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry for what? Just another sidetrack. <laughs> I think our strengths are our sidetracks. Okay. Do you have any other... <laughs> and our main tracks. Yeah. Do you have any things you want to add? Any other trivia you found out? Uh, no, but I guess, so to kind of wrap up how I feel about Married to the Mob, um, I have a a sweet affection for it. It kind of just holds like a little dear spot in my heart, because it's it's really cute. It definitely makes me laugh every time I see it. It has a lot of wonderful people that I love seeing perform in it, like Mr. Oliver. Um, (laughs) and, uh, again, it really suckers me in with its amazing production design. Like, I can watch a really crappy movie, but if it looks beautiful, I'll, I'll watch the crap out of it. We watched um, Young Girls of Rochefort. Yeah. Am I saying that correctly? I, Whatever. I'm terrible with French. French, <laughs> yeah. French movie by a different Demi. Yeah. 
Uh, and nailed it. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> and it's like this two and a half hour French musical that stars Catherine Deneuve. It's like not that interesting of a movie. Gene Kelly shows up for a while in it, but it is gorgeous. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. The the costumes, the locations, the props. I mean, everything in that movie is just beautiful to watch. And I was captivated, not because it was a great movie, but because it just looked fantastic. And Married to the Mob looks fantastic, and it's funny, and it's sweet. So it kind of is like a, a triple threat for me. So would your teachable thing be? Um... I hate having to teach something. I'm not a teacher. Well, yeah, uh, but just like, what would you want Pop someone? <laughs> Dr. Carries in. If you had to, if you had to <coughs> make someone watch this movie for a reason other than you'll be entertained, what is it? Uh, I think that it. Um, I think that it's a, an '80s twist on screwball comedy, and you don't see that that often. No. So I think that that is that's a great reason to watch this movie. Wait. Um, yeah, I guess going off what you said, Carrie, um, this may seem like kind of like a thuddingly obvious thing to say, but it's just like, <laughs> movies are multifaceted. There's so many like aspects you can take apart in a movie, okay. right? Um, and usually for a movie to succeed, like, all these things need to come together very neatly for it to pack that punch. This movie, the script is, is like we kind of talked about, the script is pretty weak. And usually that's, gonna, that's something that's so major that's going to doom a movie. Oh, yeah. But everything else in this movie is so, like, A-list. The performances are all fantastic. The production design is phenomenal. Uh, the direction is great by Demi. That can overcome, like, lacking in this, like, one mm -hmm. key facet and become, like, a really great movie. So I guess I would say it's just, like, develop an appreciation for, like, all the different ways movies can be wonderful and great. Because mm -hmm. um, they're all really important. Yeah, I agree with that. And I and I already said a lot about how I love Jonathan Demme's directing in this, and I kind of realized just from when I've been going through his movies, this is probably the most typical Jonathan Demme movie. Maybe this or something wild, but both of them kind of, like, they really push to the forefront all the key elements that define his movies and you see reflected out uh, before and after. So I guess the thing I really want you to focus on is the balance of tone that is pulled off here, especially because, um, like we've said before, there's, like, violence and uh, nudity and swearing, and it all exists and it earns an R rating, while at the same time, like, constantly, like, making it, like, making it not matter. Like, making it just, like, okay, and it's not disturbing, it never makes you sad. There's, like, the one time that there's, like, a mean moment in the movie, it's when the FBI agent is yelling at Michelle Pfeiffer, right. but other than that, there's, like, the violence is, like, very amazingly delicately handled, and um, it just shows, like, the the way in which you can blend comedy and violence without, like, overdoing one or the other, without making, like, a, a, a perfect blend of those styles. So, yeah, just, a, a, it's a really great lesson in tonal perfection, I would say. Yeah, I mean, now that you put it that way, I can't believe a, a movie about mobsters maintains a tone that it's okay to laugh about it the whole time. Right. I mean, usually when it's a mobster movie and it's supposed to be funny, it ends up being like 
really hokey. Like Wise Guys diplomas? Yeah. <laughs> or I was even thinking of My Cousin Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely thought of My Cousin no. Vinny all the time. Miller's Crossing does it pretty well. I, neither of us have seen it yet. That's, oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah we got <laughs> to see it. Oh, man. That's, that's, so that's a high wow, price. That, yeah. I love I love those. <laughs> anyway. Well, well, and even what you're saying about mob movies, this is this has to be the only mob comedy that doesn't reference any other mob movies at all. It does, and it's like, when they're all, they all say, forget about it. Forget yeah, about it. Yeah, so forget about it. So it's kind of like a wink. But I, I'm, I'm Sicilian. Sicilian people really say that. It's, not like, <laughs> it's like I'm just pretty authentic. And most stereotypes of Sicilian people are unfortunately pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Straight from the cow's mouth, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecy, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, we loved Married to the Mob. Yeah. Uh, so we knew we, we, knew, we, we knew we loved it. it but, yeah, we just want to tell you guys that we love it, too. Uh, so, <laughs> You're uh, welcome. Yeah. So this has been Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Wade. Thanks for listening. Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chapin. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.